0: Okay, the scripture reading for today is John 17:20 20 through 26. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one i am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me father i want those you have given me to be with me where i am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation righteous father the world has not known you however I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. The Word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Amelia. She's my wife, so I didn't know if I should say thank you, babe, or something like that. This morning, we are finishing up our series on John 17, so this will be the last message. In John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible, and that makes it special all by itself. But in addition to that, this is the final prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples he is praying, knowing that his hour has come at the end of his final time of teaching with them as they are together. Given all this, as we've been saying most most weeks as I've been teaching on this, uh, this prayer then, in such an intense time where the air is filled with tension, where the disciples know something big, is about to happen and Jesus himself knows this is the final time we realize this prayer is not filled with trivial matters. It's not a prayer of anything secondary. Instead, what we have here in this prayer is Jesus's deepest heart for his followers. We have a prayer that reflects Jesus's highest priorities for all who believe in him. And for us, in a time where we have lived and are living through a very confusing time, a very challenging time, it continues to be so, where things are constantly changing. It's like being on a boat out at sea, tossed by the waves and bobbing and moving up and down. If you've ever been in that situation, and you're starting to feel disoriented <laughs> and sick, out on the ocean, then probably you've thought and probably you have prayed, Lord, just bring me back to solid ground and I will kiss the land. I just want to be somewhere that is stable. This prayer of Jesus is stable ground for all of those who follow Him, especially in confusing times where there's so much noise where there's so many voices all around us, when there's a lot of fog and a lot of waves that are tossing about, this prayer has the power to clear our heads and to clear our hearts and to remind us what is most important to Jesus and following Him. And as we saw last week, starting in verse 20, if you look there again at verse 20, we have the one place in all of the Bible, this is it, where Jesus Christ specifically and directly prays for those who believe in him through the word of his original disciples. In other words, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is Jesus's specific prayer for you, for us. His prayer for us is what? Well, he repeats it three times, it's very clear. His prayer is that we may be one. In verse 21, may they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Verse 22, so that they may be one. Verse 23, so that they may be made completely one. Last week, we covered the same passage, and what I hope to do and try to do is lay a foundation for how important this is why it's important, and how this oneness can happen. This morning is a part two for this text and this message. If Jesus' deepest heart and one of his highest priorities for us is that we be one, if this was his one prayer for us, then as we talked about last week, what's happened? We are living in a time of sharp divisions, discord in our culture right now, and it seems like It can be just as bad among Christians and in the church. This isn't the first time we could say that, but what's going on? If this is Jesus's prayer for us, what have we got wrong? So I felt one message was not enough, and after preparing this and standing here before you this morning, two messages is not enough to talk about this. But I want to do my best, and what I hope to do this morning is review for us First, why be one? Remember why it's important. Two, talk about when not to be one. Where's the line in unity? Is there a line? Thirdly, how do we become one? To provide some practical steps. And lastly, when will we be one? Is this a lost cause? Or is this something that we can pursue with great hope? So let's look at this. Why be one? We did talk about this last week, but we need to review it. Why is it so important to Jesus that we be one, all those who follow him, that we be one? How can this be the one prayer Jesus has for his church for all time, so much so that he repeats it three times? He doesn't include anything else, but he says, may they be one. What is writing on this prayer? Jesus is clear on why this is so important to him. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And again in verse 23, may they be one so that the world may know you sent me. What Jesus is doing here and what he's saying here is that the word and the message about him, about Jesus Christ, that all Christians are called to believe and are called to share with others becomes believable. And becomes credible to those who don't believe when there is an unexplainable love and unity in the church among those who are his disciples. So that the quality of our love together, Jesus is saying, is the key factor for the credibility of our witness to the world. So in a divided world, In a world where there is war and disagreement and tension, the church is not to mirror these things and simply be a reflection of these things of the world back to itself, but is called to be this fresh air of peace and unity. It's like this, an illustration to to bring this home. It's as if you're driving through a war zone and we see pictures of what a war zone is like unfortunately and tragically in the Ukraine. If you're driving or walking through a war zone, what do you see? You see destruction everywhere. You see buildings that were once thriving reduced to rubble. Everything is dark. Everything is gray. Imagine being there in this kind of environment and walking through and you're passing by all these heaps of rubble and it's dark and It's depressing and it's terrible. And all of a sudden, as you're walking, you come to a place and you see this area where there's this house. It's surrounded by this lawn and it's green and it's colorful and it seems untouched by any of the destruction all around it. And if you were there in that war zone and you saw this plot of land and you saw this house and this place and you go, how did this happen? How is this house still standing? How is it so beautiful? And you would be drawn into that house as a place of safety and refuge. This is what Jesus is praying would happen when people in the world encounter the church, his church, that they would say, wait, what, how? How are these people from diverse backgrounds, differences, in perspective and experiences and their stories, how are they one? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is real after all. There's a quote in the beginning of your bulletin, one of the reflection quotes. It's from a pastor, leader in our denomination named Erwin Ince. In his book, The Beautiful Community, he says it like this, the world should look at the church in amazement and wonder and say, how did that happen? How did people with such differences come together and commit to staying together in spite of the difficulty? So, friends, if you're a Christian here, every Christian should look at this prayer and ask and must ask, will the the world, would the world look at us in amazement and wonder? Or would the world look at us, the followers of Jesus, and just say, hmm, and shrug their shoulders? Nothing really to see here. I just ask you all to consider, what do you think? But maybe we should get more specific because oneness and unity, it can be very vague. It can be just kind of a concept out there if we just keep it theoretical. Here's one specific area of oneness that I believe is directly included in Jesus's prayer. The world should look at us in amazement and wonder at our racial and ethnic unity amongst the followers of Jesus Christ. And they should say, how did that happen? What is going on there? This was true of the early church. It wasn't easy. Like this quote says, it was a lot of difficulty. That is one of the things that got the attention of the world around the early church. They said, how did this happen? i never seen before racial and ethnic unity. In Jesus' prayer for oneness here, this is a big issue, but let me offer some thoughts here. Jesus' prayer for oneness can help us think clearer about these things in a time of racial tension. How? Well, Jesus doesn't pray for us here in this place to have or to share and to speak all the explanations and answers to the world about how to heal, how to understand, how to resolve the very real racial and ethnic tensions that exist. That's not the first thing he says. He doesn't say, they'll know that I was sent by the Father by how you critique various theories about race. They'll know that I was sent by the Father by the policies that you enact in the government. They'll know that I was sent by the Father if you just tell them, hey guys, Jesus is the answer in a very simple way. He doesn't say that. He prays for one. Jesus' prayer is that the church should be a picture for the world of what it looks like to be one with people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. To be one means we would listen to the pain and the hurt that is caused by racism and division. To feel with those who weep and who fear when things like what happened in Buffalo last weekend happened and cause fear and pain. When things like what happened in our own county at the church in Laguna, Woods, when that happens, we feel and we hurt. When things happen, this evil that can sprout from the toxic soil of racial and ethnic division, when we are one, when we are being one, When other people hurt or afraid, we feel along with them, even if they come from a different background than us. To be one means not just that we are in the same church, in the same building together, worshiping. That is something, and that is something to celebrate. It's still rare in our country, and praise God. If I could speak for a moment to what God is doing here at Trinity OC, praise God for the diversity here, it's a wonderful thing. But I also must say that being in the same church is not the same thing as being one. That takes difficult conversations. Repentance, forgiveness, compassion, listening, grace, love from those who are in a majority culture, majority situation, the kind of love that is willing to listen, to set aside what is comfortable, even to the point of feeling offended because You're willing to love even when it hurts. And for those from a minority culture or situation to bear with and forgive the mistakes of those who are not, even to the point of offense when it hurts because love is willing even to hurt for the purpose of being one. All that, it's not possible without Jesus. It's not possible unless we believe we are loved even as the Father loves him. What we say is important. How we engage these dialogues is very important. But Jesus' prayer is telling us here what we are is most important, that we learn to be one. Why? Because we get to display to the world who our Savior is, that he was sent by the Father, and how our world needs this in racial and ethnic matters, but in many other matters as well. What an opportunity is before us now in the church. So I would just appeal to you. Remember why Jesus prayed this prayer. But next point, there's a question. Some of you might have, some of you may have had last week Isn't there, this is is good, I'm a little afraid to ask this question because of how important this is to Jesus and that he prays this prayer for us, but isn't there a place where we shouldn't be one? Is there a line somewhere? You might say, I see people who say they are Christians, they're doing this, they're saying that. I don't think that represents Jesus. I'm not so sure about that and I don't know if I want to be one with them. Does anybody feel that? Or think that? Is willing to admit it? Thank you. Yeah, I feel that too. So where is the line? These are great questions. The same person who wrote and recorded this prayer of Jesus in John 17, the Apostle John, he's also known as the Apostle of Love because of how deeply he believed these things and lived these things out. He wrote this in one of his later letters in 2 John, and we have this on a slide. He said this. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. So what John is talking about here, he's talking about people who say they are Christians but they go beyond the teaching of Christianity, they change and they add essential components of the faith. In this case, what he's talking about, the matter at hand was whether Jesus was fully human. People who deny that, he says, do not receive or greet them, i.e., do not be one with them. There's another reference I wanna share with you from Paul in 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that is all about healing divisions. That's what the whole letter is about. But then he says in chapter 11 this, and we also have a slide for that. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So what is he saying? He's saying division can reveal there is a difference, that there is A difference in belief that is consequential and sometimes divisions show which belief and practice truly represents Jesus and which does not. So in light of this, in order to be one, we also have to know when not to be one and when we must be one. If we are one with people who call themselves Christians but are not, but are people who misrepresent Jesus. And the essential truth of the gospel then we compromise our witness and we confuse people who is jesus i don't understand is he this or that and we give those who may hold to those positions a false sense of assurance as well so we give them a false sense of assurance that we're one with them we give the world a false and confused jesus so that's not good but if we aren't one with people who say they are christians and are christians but sometimes inaccurately represent jesus and his word. We compromise our witness and mission if we create unnecessary division and schism around these issues with genuine Christians. We create a false sense of security in the church wondering who's right and who is wrong. And we compromise our witness by dividing the church and disobeying Jesus' prayer here. Now, having laid all that out, if you're following me, that probably didn't make it any easier to figure this out. But these are the two directions, and it's very, very hard, but it's clear how important it is to Jesus. We can't just say, well, it's just an invisible spiritual unity we all have in the clouds. And avoid the discernment and the difficulty of knowing when not to be one and when we must be one, because it has to be visible, right, in Jesus' prayer or else how's the world gonna see it and notice it? It has to be visible in some way. We all have a part in it, Jesus says, so that they all, every single one of us, must be one. How does this happen? Well, hopefully here I can offer some practical thoughts. How do we become one, given how difficult this is? First, one way that we do not become one, not by a force, forceful way, or forced organization. We say, well, I know what we can do. Let's just all get together. Forget all these denominations and differences. One church, we'll call it the one church. And let's just unite organizationally, right? Well, let me read you this. History's biggest merger, according to the internet. A very reliable source. Took place in 2000. It was worth over $180 billion the largest merger and acquisition deal in history. In this deal, the UK-based Vodafone merged with the German company Mannesmann. Isn't your heart moved by that? You believe there is a God of love because Vodafone and Mannesmann are one. Okay, that's ridiculous. No, you don't. That's just an organizational merge. It doesn't do anything, fine, whatever. The point I'm making here is just organizational unity is not the point. You can have that, and it can be forced, but it's something very different than as what Paul says in, in Philippians. We read this last week. Being united in spirit, thinking the same way, intent on one purpose, having the same love and affection. It has to be real unity. So the answer is somewhere between two They're called false remedies by an old Scottish guy named Anthony Burgess. He's the guy I've been telling you who preached 145 messages on John 17. So respect to him. And he says there's two false remedies. One is absolute uniformity. Forced uniformity, absolute uniformity is not the remedy. But neither is unbounded toleration. Unbounded toleration, absolute uniformity, it has to be somewhere in between. Let me offer you 3 countercultural ideas that we must embrace, that this prayer of Jesus enables us to embrace in order to realize greater unity that each one of us can put into practice first. These are three very unpopular words and ideas. The first is authority. Not many people say, I know what we need as an answer to our problems and divisions. We need more authority we're all a little wary of authority. It can be abused and it can be misused. But without an agreed upon authority, there can be no unity, no basis, no boundaries, and you can't be one. Look at verse 20, this is the basis for our unity. Jesus says, he's praying this prayer for those who will believe in me through their word. And here is a key concept in this entire prayer of Jesus the theme and the concept of his word. Verse six in the prayer, looking at other references in chapter 17. He says, as he's praying for the disciples, they've kept your word. Verse six, I have given them the words you gave me. Verse eight, I have given them your word. Verse 14, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, verse 17. For followers of Jesus, Jesus is praying that the word of God be our authority because it is the truth. We receive the word, the truth that comes to us from the apostles of Jesus that he is praying for here. These apostles are the ones who either wrote or authorized the books of the New Testament. They received, as Jesus did and taught, all the Old Testament What we call the Word of God, the Bible, is the truth. And so unity comes through the agreed-upon authority of this truth. And now we say, great. It's simple then. Christians, all those Christians who believe the Bible is the truth and our authority, we can all agree in unity, right? So simple. Well, we all know it's not that simple. There are some things that are clear and essential in the Bible, and some things that are less clear and less essential. Jesus said himself, there are weightier matters of the law. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm talking to you about what is of first importance. If I said to you, I have an announcement to make Trinity, we cannot be one or in agreement with any church that starts worship at 11 a.m. That is a terrible error. It has to be 10 a.m. You would say, that's not in scripture. That's not clear. That's not taught. What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. If I say we cannot be one with any church that has a different view of the return of Jesus Christ, of the timeline and the end times, you would say, well, I think that's important, but is that something that we should not have unity about with another church? Or is that allowable to have differences? If I said to you, we cannot be one with any Christian church, That does not believe Jesus is the Son of God, fully divine and fully human, that He died for our sins and rose from the grave, we would all say, yeah, that is essential. And so there is discernment and wisdom required for us as we navigate the common authority we have, the truth of the Scriptures, and discern what is essential and clear, what is less clear and less essential. Not unimportant, but less clear and less essential. How do we decide on these matters? We talked about authority, next is community. In verse 23, when Jesus says, so that they may be made completely and perfectly one with other people, to be completely one, it doesn't mean uniformity, that everybody is lockstep thinking the exact same things and exactly the same. But to be one means there's something more important than our individuality and our personal opinions, convictions, and preferences. How does this help work toward unity in issues that can divide us? Well, to be a Christian, you are laying aside your right to invent or to create your own personal creed or version of Jesus. To be a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. You are in Him, so you have to learn from the body of Christ, all the other people who are in Jesus as well, from your present community, as well as from your past community. So you cannot say, I'm going to have my own personally edited version of the Apostles' Creed. I am going to have my own version of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to have my own take on salvation by the grace of God and not by works. You submit to these creeds. You go deeper into these things, but you realize these are the creeds that have been worked out by my community who are in Christ and are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, so I need to learn from them. And almost always, in essential matters, to submit to them. C.S. Lewis, who in my opinion, is one of the smartest people ever who could have just said, I'm going to rewrite everything and make it better. I was like, well, if one person can do it, it's him. But here's what he said at the beginning of Mere Christianity. He says, I was not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born and whether I like it or not. Even somebody as smart as C.S. Lewis is submitting to his community, those he is one with in Christ. Every person really has two options. You learn from other Christians and groups of Christians who have believed and studied and wrestled with the Bible in different times and contexts, with the help of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said he would give us to lead us into all truth. And we align our creed and our doctrine with theirs. Or we can say, even though I know I'm shaped by my context and my experience and my preferences and all of those things and I'm broken and impaired by sin and how I understand these things, I'm going to come up with my own unique, better version of these creeds and doctrine that is all my own. Those are the two paths we have to walk. We could say things like, well, you know what? Forget all that. I'm just gonna say, no creed but Christ. the problem is, that is a creed. It's a short one, but is it biblical? Is that all that we are given to unite on? Or is there more that's essential? Or you could say, I don't need any other book. I don't need any other creed. I just have one book, the Bible. No book but the Bible. But the problem is that sentence is not in the Bible, is it? So you do have another book. It's a super tiny five-sentence book. No book but the Bible. But you have it right alongside the Bible as your authority, right? Here's my point. Anytime we start paraphrasing, explaining, interpreting, or applying the actual words of the Bible, we are going beyond the words of the actual Bible itself. And we are in the realm of what? Doctrine. creeds are not dirty words they're not things that divide the church in fact they are things we need to speak the same language to unite it doesn't mean they're set in stone it doesn't mean they're equal to Scripture but they guide us into the unity that we can have in Jesus because we need each other to get there so we do have a choice to create our own or to submit to a community Personal study and personal conviction, that's important. We all stand before the Lord, as Romans 14 says, and we are accountable to him for what we hold to and what we believe. But in a culture of extreme individualism, where everyone has their own creed, we need this corrective. I saw this from a pastor that I respect. It's in your um, reflection quotes as well. He said, the only person that I know that I completely agree with is me. And I changed my mind. There's so much wisdom there. So the fact is, I disagree with me. Present me disagrees with past me. And in my case, that is very true when it comes to theology and doctrine. That means future me, in all likelihood, will also disagree with present me. So which one is right? (laughs) The point is we need to have great humility. We need to rely on other people to guide us. In these things and the gifts that God has given his church now and in the past okay but what happens when we believe the Bible we submit and learn from community but some things just seem out of alignment hey Pastor Eric there are different creeds and doctors you know that yes I know that now what third thing humility I think all genuine Christians care about Jesus's prayer here they care about unity and when they read this passage they're troubled You may be troubled. I've been troubled. Disturbed. What are we doing? What are we doing wrong? We need to get our act together. We're not one like we should be. And then we think, I know what can solve this. If everyone would just wake up and be like me, if everyone would become PCA, then it would all be solved, right? Have my theology agree with my take on all the things that are dividing us then it'll all be solved. Friends, isn't this the exact attitude of the parable that we read in Luke 18? If you flip there in your prayer of confession, that's why I included it. There's the Pharisee and there's the sinner. And the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. They do this, they do that, they've got it wrong. If everybody was like me, how united we would all be that attitude will be destructive to the unity of the church. But the other attitude represented by the person called the publican, who's on his knees, who dares not draw near to the holiness of God, knowing his truth is complete. My understanding is far from the understanding of a holy and wise God who says, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. He can be a force for unity. So let me ask you, is there a part of you that's glad? Some of you need to hear these things. When you see an error to point out in fellow Christians to cancel, that you relish the thought of arguing against this bad doctrinal opinion somebody else has that's not love. That's the attitude of saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Are you finding your identity and not being that kind of person or that kind of Christian over there? Or are you like... The man who was on his knees, who said, how can I be loved by the Father just as Jesus is? God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and somehow God answered that prayer. Something we all need to wrestle with. Humility. Another author, his name's Gavin Ortland, made this great point. He said, it's not ignorance that's the problem. It's ignorance about our ignorance that is the problem. And the more that we know, the more we should realize what we don't know and take a posture of humility even in those areas of difference. Last thought, when will we be one? Is it a lost cause or can we have hope? Well, the final, final part of Jesus' prayer tells us. Here at the, at the end of this prayer, verses 24 through 26, he says, Father, I pray that they may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. We haven't talked a lot about this section of the prayer. and Last week, I was trying to figure out how are these two sections of Jesus' final prayer connected. Last week, I thought it was kind of a separate closing part. But now I I feel like I see this connection. I want to share that with you. And that is this. When all who believe in Jesus are with him, and see his glory, then they will be one. That's what John was given a vision of in Revelation 7. This is how we started our service. So turn to the front of your bulletin. Look at page 2 in the bulletin that says people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people are standing before the throne of God in worship. All the people who believe in Jesus, all those whom he died for, from blue states, red states, all denominations and doctrines, they are with Jesus. They are beholding and seeing his glory. And what are they doing? Are they nudging each other and saying, were you for or against CRT? Are you a Calvinist or are you a Minion? What's that Pentecostal doing over there? All Americans over here, we're over here in the front. Who did you vote for in 2024? No one's doing that. Why not? Because they're with him and they see his glory. No one is standing up and gloating and saying, look at me, I was right, everybody, see? all the things that we glory in, that we think set us apart from other people, the things that we say, I'm like this, thank God I'm not like that. And this moment before the Lamb and in the presence of God, with all people from every tribe and tongue and nation, all people of all different backgrounds before the throne of God, all those things we gloried in, they're laid in the dust before the glory of Jesus who died to save us all. We will be ascribing all authority to Jesus in community with each other in perfect humility. We are going there. We are called to give a glimpse to the world of this now. So as we look at Revelation 7, or this passage, But we're given this glimpse, the reason we're given this glimpse is not to say, oh, I can't wait till we get there. I'm living so that we can get there. We're given that glimpse so we can say, we are going there, and so let's live from that future now. We will get there. Our nations and tribes and peoples aren't erased forever, but they're brought together before the throne. We no longer find glory in them, but we glory in Jesus alone. Let's pray that we could do that more and more now, friends. Jesus. This prayer challenges us, it humbles us. And I pray it would convict us and we'd be open in our hearts to any of the ways that we are not pursuing unity in love, in the way that you call us to be. Forgive us for how we have not presented to the world a picture of the oneness that we do have in you. Help us to put this in practice. We know there are big issues all around us, but help us to put the practices of oneness and love into effect in the relationships that we have all around us in our families and the people that we have a hard time agreeing with, the people that you have placed in our life. Fill us with the knowledge that we are loved by you so we have the security, so we have the grace to forgive and the power to listen and all the things that are required for us to be more one so Jesus, so that the world may know that you were sent to save us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.